Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the Internet. So grab a cocktail. It's always happy hour somewhere. And enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Hey guys, welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Wednesday, uh, April 22nd. My name is Scott Fulton. I am your host. Got a great show for you today. Starting off here, it's a couple of pre-taped interviews and uh, we're going to get right on to it and I'll be back to talk about things in between here. So we're going to start off with my first pre-taped interview with the fantastic Duke James Mason or James Duke Mason. Duke Mason. Uh, he is a uh, Fantastic advocate for the LGBT community. Then our second hour, we're going to do Fred Carger, the very first guy to run for president in the United States as an openly gay man. But we're going to start off with a little bit of Fred Mogan Real Me and jump right into the interview with Duke Mason. And I'll be back in between interviews here. You're listening to Left to Straight Show right here on Left to Straight Radio Network. Hey everybody at the start of the radio show, sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Hey guys, it's Scott. How y'all doing? Sorry to talk my radio show there. Hi, Kevin. Hello. Hey, how are you guys doing? I hope. 
here a little early. Um, I'm doing a show with the Air Perceiva, so. Okay. Oh, it starts at a 7, but again, if we get done early, it's not a deal, but. Uh, yeah, we should. I'm going to try
which is, um, you know, you know whether that's, <laughs> it never happens. And, you know, you know I think it's great that people back, are adhering um, to the you know, rules. And I think that's why California is seeing some really good results day, in like, terms of, you know, flattening the curve. Exactly. And another good thing, side effects, we're having some great air quality. It's got to be finally blue skies in L.A. It's beautiful. A lot of places are cleaning up actually pretty nicely. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I think I saw a report either yesterday or today, this morning, that said that Los Angeles now has the cleanest Um, air quality in the country. Oh, my goodness. That's wild. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, exactly, right? So I was just going to say, you know, also, uh, of course, again, this is a devastating um, you know, situation for so many people. But again, when it comes to the silver linings, you are seeing uh, places like Venice where the canals are, are clearing up and um, you know, you're seeing wildlife uh, come back to life in places where, you know, because of pollution, um, you know, it, 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 there have been a lot of issues. So, you know, you do have to try and look at silver linings, and um, but at least environmentally, it seems like um, this is having, you know, some sort of beneficial impact, you know. Exactly. we got so many negative effects with it. you got to look at the silver linings and say, because uh, we just need that to keep an attitude. I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff that we're all going through right now. So you got to look at this positive stuff just to keep us going. But I agree 100%. Let's go ahead and jump into this. I mean, this interview is all about you, but like I alluded to earlier, we got to start with the fact that your mom is the beautiful and talented Linda Carlisle from the Go-Go's. Your dad, Morgan Mason, is an intern executive producer. Pretty famous part of his own. How that kind of just like streamlined through it. I mean, it wasn't where did you grow up? What kind of a kid were you? What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I was born in L.A. Um, I was born in L.A. Uh, actually the day or the day before the Rodney King riots began. So it was a pretty uh, turbulent time in, in L.A. And, uh, you know, my parents, I think part of the reason why we left like that, and moved but, to Europe um, when I was I two that was that style, in a space of two years, uh, we had both the L.A. riots and the um, the Northridge quake in 1994. Um, I think my parents, my parents were like, you know, you know what, this is not exactly maybe the right place to to raise a child. Yeah, I, so I, I, that, um, you know, I think when I was two, weekend, so we decided we to pick up and move to France. Like and uh, I ended up spending pretty much my entire life bit. up until I was 18 um, um, living in Europe. I lived in France for yeah, in total 13 yeah, years. I mean, I, and I lived I in uh, England and London for three years. And I was a pretty unusual kid. Um, because, you know, between the fact that I was American, obviously coming from a, um entertainment background with the, you know, quote-unquote celebrity um, parents, um, and then also, you know, because of my dad worked in the Reagan administration, um, you know, back in the day, you know, I grew up having an interest in American politics, so I was all, I was all these weird things that, you know, nobody you know, in my school had never really seen before. I was pretty different than all the other kids um, at the you know, European schools that I went to. So, um, yeah, and, then, and then later on, the fact, of course, when I came out at 14, that made me all the more unusual. So, 
I was like, I was kind of an unusual kid, but um, but you know I'm proud of that. I, I think it's Maybe good to, to be like a to be different. Team, you know? campaign out. So, did you like have any clue while you were growing up what what interests you? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I always, at least starting, I think when I was around 11 or 12, I became interested in politics, and that was always, you know, very clearly in my mind um, what I wanted to do. But when I decided that I wanted to come out around the age of 13 or 14, I, at the time, you know, there were very few examples of LGBT people in politics, and especially in elected office at high high level. So, you know, there was a period there where I kind of resigned myself to the fact that, you know, even though I I love politics, there was a high likelihood I might never at least hold office or do, you know, uh, I thought maybe I could be a commentator or a writer or something along those lines or an activist, but I sort of gave up for a a period there on wanting to be in office. But, I think, you know, as I got a little older and things started to really change, um, I think I realized that, you know, that there maybe was a chance that I could that I could pursue electoral politics and and be out at the same time. And I think, you know, um, we've seen, obviously, with Pete Buttigieg and um, so many LGBT people being elected to Congress and to state um, legislatures around the country. I think it's amazing that we've seen so many huge changes uh, when it comes to LGBT representation. You know? Exactly, exactly. Well said. And let's talk about that a second. I mean, I read that you were openly gay very early on. Tell me about when did you kind of first come out to yourself, and what was your first thought when you started to go out into the LGBT community as a whole? I knew I was gay when I was very young. Um, I mean, I remember, I've told this story before, I think, um, how I watched the movie Casper, <laughs> The Friendly Ghost, when I was, I think, seven or eight, and... I just remember seeing it on TV, and the end of the movie, there's a scene where Casper, the ghost, turns into a boy, um, and he dances uh, with Christina Ricci's character in the film. I actually remember um, watching that and saying to myself at the age of seven or eight, you know, I wish I could be dancing with him instead of her. And I remember even back then going, wait a second, like stopping myself and saying, wait a second, what does that mean? Or is that that's, that's kind of a different than most other boys that I you know come into contact with. So, you know, I knew very early on, but it wasn't really until I was 13 or 14 that I put the word and the political, social, you know, uh, context of what it meant to be gay. So when I when I connected the two, my feelings and with sort of the broader implications. So, but once I did that. Um, you, you know, I you came out pretty quickly, and, and so when I was 14, the 14, 20, 2006 was the year that I came out to my parents, my family, my friends at school. That was really the the year when everything changed for me. Gotcha. Very cool. And I want to get into the politicalness because I'm a huge political junkie here. I love your activism, not just your lip service, but active participation. 
I mean, you created this amazing interview series, Duke's Download. We'll talk about that in a bit. But you started with an interview with your mom. That was amazing. And she seems political, but at least doesn't want to hear about the political madness rhetoric. And then we talked about your dad working for Reagan. and seems a little more conservative. How did this affect your growing up? And what got you interested in politics? You know, so my dad got me interested in it because yeah, he taught me, as a kid, he taught me all about when uh, I was a kid, he would tell me all about his people? years working in the yeah, White House. And so I got interested in, in politics as a result of that. But it, in terms of my political views, it was really my mom who shaped my, my perspective early on. Um, you know, keep in mind this was during you know, the Bush years, and I vividly remember going to see um, Fahrenheit 9-11 in theaters um, right when it came out. And so... Now, even though my dad was the person that introduced me to politics, it was really, and even, you know, to be honest, even though, even my dad, you know, he would say that he was never really a, a Republican. He was always more of a libertarian, and he was definitely not a fan of Bush or, you know, most of the contemporary, you know, Republican um, politicians. Um, so, you know, I became very, very passionate about, you know, ending the Iraq War. And um, I was just very, very militantly progressive from a young age. And, uh, and so, you know, yeah, so I think sometimes people go like, oh, that's interesting. Like, your dad worked for Reagan. Your mom was a, like, Pete Bush, you like, super liberal, you know, activist type. So, you know, but, yeah, I think I sort of I blended the two together. And, uh, and yeah, and that's sort of how I, how I got interested in it. And then... You know, after Bush won re-election, I decided that I still wanted to stay involved. And um, even though, I, of course, I was really disappointed, I thought, you know, I need, I want to continue with this. This interests me. And so when I was, you know, 15, I was a volunteer on Hillary's 2008 campaign. I was a page in Congress when I was um, 16. So, you know, um, yeah, from a young age, I just knew that this was what I wanted to do with my life. I saw that. That had to be amazing. I couldn't imagine being a page. That'd be something that I wish I would have even thought of applying for back in the day. What was that experience like? How long of a period were you there? And uh, uh, what what really kind of stands out to you in that time frame? Yeah, you know, it's so sad because they actually eliminated the, the House page program about eight or nine years ago now, I think. They, ha- they still have the Senate program. But honestly, um, being a page was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And, um, you know, I was 16 when I did it. It only lasted about a month because they have, um, you know, full full term, or I guess I don't know what the exact term was, but, you know, pages that would serve during the school year and would actually go to school in Washington. Uh, my, my term was just a, a summer um, some, or summer vacation uh, term, but it really was just incredible um, getting to be, you know, on the Hill. I think the only two people that have full-time um, access to the House floor um, you could just come and go as, as you as you wanted. It were our congressmen and pages. So I, I honestly, it felt like I was a member of Congress, and it really was just like mind blowing for a political junkie, especially. I mean, it was just like the coolest thing um, in the world. And this was during the this was during the 2008 election. So you know, we see I saw Obama when he was you know the nominee in his motorcade you know around D.C. I saw I met Nancy Pelosi. I met. 
you know, no, John Boehner. I met, uh, I met all the, I met Barney Frank. Um, so I mean, it was just the most amazing experience. And, and, and horribly, and of course, I'm not a John Boehner fan either, but. Um, I also horribly um, saw Mike Pence urinating. Even back then, I was like, back then I was like, first of all, ugh, Mike Pence. Secondly, ew. I wish I had, I didn't have this image stuck in my head. There you go. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I guess yeah, the pleasure, like I guess, of saying Boehner was one of our representatives know, here in you know, Ohio. So Put a little sour taste in my mouth. Right I also got we'll to see, I got big, Barney Frank, I had him, come. I was the chairman of our Pride Center here in Northeast Ohio, and I had him come speak to our Pride Center, which was amazing. He was just such a great person, and so, if you like politics, he is one of the best orders on politics in the world. I love every second of that. Very cool, man. I love hearing that. By running for city council for West Hollywood, I want you to tell me about that, what your goals were for the city, give us a little behind the curtain peek into politics, because I have lots of friends in local politics, and it's extremely fascinating, a little batshit crazy, and also very rewarding. So talk about your experiences running for council. It's definitely question. And, you know, especially in a city like West Hollywood where, you know, I mean, obviously the LGBT community can be extra, you know, passionate, let's say. Yes, yes, exactly. It can just be extra. Exactly. And, you know, West Hollywood is no normal city, I think. Not just because it's a majority LGBT city, but also because even though technically it's a small city of two square miles and 35,000 people, it's also obviously in the middle of Los Angeles. It's the entertainment capital of the world. You've got the Sunset Strip. You've got the LGBT nightlife district, which is super, you know, well known. So it's just a really um, unique, it's a unique city. And uh, running here definitely had its own set of challenges, and also just really fun, exciting, um, you know, uh, components to it as well. So, yeah, you know, I ran for city council the first time when I was 22 um, in 2015, and I knew I probably wouldn't win, but I thought it was, it was a good introduction, and you know, I, I've always been the type of person that feels like I'd rather go out and do something than just read about it or, or like, you know, learn about it in the classroom. I know some people are the more like a, the academic type, but for me, I've always just been like, no, I want to get out there and and actually do something. So, you know, I ran, I didn't win, but I got appointed to the Lesbian Gay Advisory Board for the city because the, under the city council in WeHo, they have a lot of um, boards and commissions that, that advise the council on different sorts of issues. 
And so for the yeah, for four years I served on that board, I continued to serve on that board. And then last year, 2019, I decided to give it another go. And this time was different because this time I think I actually had a real chance. And I think people took me a lot more seriously. So it was it was a less I wouldn't say it wasn't that it was unpleasant. It was just definitely I saw a whole different side of politics in terms of you know people being a lot more. Not uh, vicious, but just, you know, it, it was a real political race and getting uh, criticized and getting, you know, right, picked apart right, and right, people right, saying right, things right, about you right, that weren't right. true. And so, so it's, I definitely think that, I mean, yes, yeah, there are people have, that work, so have, you know, as campaign like managers right, or people that are political um, you know, junkies, but it's a really, it's hard, it's hard to understand what it's like to be a candidate until you're actually in the, in the hot seat. I didn't um, win, but I, I did pretty well. I mean, I I, I came in. The top three won. I came in fifth out of I think it was eleven or twelve candidates. Um, so I came fairly close. And uh, even though I didn't win, I got endorsements from a lot of big you know organizations like Quality California and a lot of elected officials. So I feel like. Even though I didn't win, it served its purpose, and I I feel like I hopefully built some credibility and some some visibility, and uh, I'm sure down the line, I don't know when or where or what office, but I'm sure I'll run for office again someday. Well, I hope you do, because I I think that... You are very well like, spoken. I think you're passionate about what you believe in. I saw both of your campaigns and just just the polish of your campaign from 2016, where you did your announcement video from your bedroom to the one on the first of West Hollywood. I mean, you could tell that you've upped your game, but you've always had that passion for your interests, such as homelessness and animal rights and LGBT rights. Talk about that. Talk about that rehabilitation project that you helped kind of work through. That seems amazing. Yeah, you know, I think after, because before my first campaign in 2015, my my knowledge of local politics was pretty limited. I had been interested, you know, and volunteered and been involved with national or state level, you know, campaigns, um, but I'd never been involved in a, in a local uh, campaign before. So, you know, throughout my first campaign, I learned so much about, and that was also part of it. It wasn't just about wanting to, it was wanting to do it so that I could learn as opposed to just reading a textbook. I wanted to actually get in the community, knock on doors, talk to people, learn about what the important issues were. I mean, I think a big part of running isn't just telling people what you want, what you believe, it's listening to them oh, well, yeah. and because you want to be a public servant and you want to oh, yeah. you know listen to what the community's We've needs and, and wants are so after that first campaign uh, you know i took a lot of the knowledge that i that i'd uh, attained you know when it came to issues like, like affordable housing and, and rent control um, and uh, yeah, you know the difficulties that like small businesses were dealing with in the same age with gentrification and all that and I really wanted cool. to, okay. you know, to yeah, make an I impact mean, on those issues. So um, I got on the board of an organization um, here in West Hollywood that builds affordable housing and um, the Blue, Hib- Blue Hibiscus Project, which you mentioned, which is one of the amazing projects that, they, that we built um, during my time on that board. 
um, that uh, you know yeah, caters well, to low-income uh, people and, and disadvantaged people. Um, affordable housing, I think, is one of the most important issues in the country, and I don't think it gets anywhere near enough attention because you know it's not necessarily the most like sexy, most controversial issue. So um, I think in terms of need. And I mean, people, especially now, you know what's going on. You know, there are people that are terrified that, you know, they're not going to be able to stay in their in their homes and in their apartments. And so that's why I've, I've felt for a long time now and continue to feel that affordable housing and rent control, tenants' rights, should be at the very top of the priority list. Well said. Yeah, I, I agree 100. percent And it is not talked about. And uh, I think one of my favorite memes going around during all this promo stuff going on was if we were in such a great economy, why is everyone one to two paychecks away from losing their house or their livelihood? So it's really something that we have to pay attention to and find those rights and make sure they are incorporating everybody. Yeah, and you know. Um, and I think, you know, the, the conversation about housing and, uh, you know, and rent control and all that is, is tied to the larger crisis that we have in this country when it comes to um, income inequality and the lack of wage growth over the last 30, 40 years. Um, you know, I think, I think those issues, those issues of affordable housing and, and rent control are tied to those larger problems that um, I think we need to address as a, as a country. You know? yeah. Right. No, exactly. Living wage, living wage like all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can get specific for them, but I'm sure I can get Sure. Well, I definitely message. hope you'll run again. Um, if you ever need an assistant communications over manager, we'll let me know. I'll be over in a heartbeat. Yeah, I will, I will support you 150%, my friend. And I think one Thank of the you so much. Yeah, I'm sure I know. I'm almost certain I will. I don't know if it'll be for we host the council, but I mean, I'll run if a good opportunity presents itself. Sunday, I think that I have the right, you know, credentials and, and nice background for that particular position, then um, I'm sure I'll, I'm sure in the next five, to, um, ten years, um, that's something that I'm going to do again, for sure. Fantastic. Let's uh, pull back a little bit, uh, get a wider view of the country right now. As you said, you have worked on both Obama's and Hillary's campaigns. I was so hoping for a Buttigieg campaign, but do you have any plans to work for Biden this year? I do. Um, I don't know if it will be in a volunteer or paid capacity, but um, you know, one of my close friends is um, this guy, James Costos, who was an ambassador under Obama to Spain. And he and his partner are very politically active, and they actually, I think, have been big bundlers and supporters on Biden's campaign. So I've talked to him a little bit, and I think as the campaign goes on, I definitely plan on getting more um, involved. Maybe it's sort of what I did for Obama and Hillary, which was I was a, a, an LGBT surrogate, and I went to different you know, pride events and groups around the country and, and spoke to them about why they should support um, you know, the candidate. So hopefully I'll do the same thing could, for Biden. Yeah, like we could also feature somebody. That would be amazing. Give me your thoughts on Buttigieg. It looks like I saw you had a picture with him. Did you meet him? Did you talk I mean, to him? God, I was looking for you know, a Buttigieg presidency. You know, talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I actually um, – it was really amazing because I actually, I remember in like March, April, 2018, long before, um, you know, he got his big you know, boost, um, from the CNN town hall, um, 
you know, uh, way the, before he was a known person, I actually reached out to him on Twitter stuff, and I wrote to him a message and I said, you know, if you do, if you do decide to run in 2020, I would love to help in any way I can. And he actually wrote back and said, you know, thank you. Um, you know, I'm glad to hear you're running for office yourself. There's nothing like it. And then um, when he decided he was going to run, right after the CNN town hall gave him his first big, uh, you know, exposure to people, he had an event in West Hollywood, and I messaged him in advance, and I said, you know, that I was going to be attending this event, and he wrote back, and he said uh, that he'd seen all my signs for my council campaign around town. Um, so it was, it was cool, you know, I went to the event, I got to talk to him a little bit, um, I mean, nothing too... Uh, out movies and just about the, you know, the campaign, um, and I, I said again, you know, he said he help. So I mean, then I met so him once, one more time um, this past August uh, at another event in West Hollywood. So I got to meet him a couple of times, and I attended events, and I was, you know, very um, supportive of him on social media. So you know, I of course I was really, really sad um, when he uh, dropped out because I really did think that um, he was going to win, and I thought. Yeah, I really think, honestly, had it not been for the Iowa debacle, I think had the Iowa results come out the night that they they were supposed to, I think he might very well, you know, have have done it. But I think he probably was deprived of the momentum that he would have otherwise gotten from his win in uh, in Iowa. You know. I agree. I agree 100%. It's very funny. We have very similar stories that way. I agree. Because being here in Northeast Ohio and South Bend's only about a five-hour drive from here, I have been aware of him as a mayor over there in his campaign. It was kind of on my LGBT radar. And I actually had him for an interview on the radio show Tuesday before he did the CNN interview. So it was right before he blew up. And it's just an amazing hour to talk to him. And I just knew he was going to catch fire before that interview. I didn't know how big, of course, and I just had hopes. But I think you're 100% right. I think if it would have gone a little different in Iowa, I think it could have been – uh, a big, a lot different story. So, right it's tough when you learn if you don't have the right vote. I think that's the biggest thing. That was his biggest problem block. So I, I don't think he, he probably would have the same thing as Bernie when South Carolina came around. But he was doing damn well. And even though he didn't win, you know, obviously his contribution to history, you know, is so important. And you know, one of my good friends, pretty close friends is a guy named Fred Carger, who, you know, was actually the first openly gay man to run for president back in 2012, and he didn't qualify for the Republican debate, but he ran as a liberal Republican trying to, you know, he'd worked in the, for Reagan and Bush and all these uh, Republicans back in the day, and he, you know, and he, he, he didn't make the debate, but, you know, he, I really respected him for what he did, and he sort of lit the torch, and I thought it was really, um, incredible that, and, you know, that Pete took it to the next level. And I think I, I have no doubt that because of what Pete did and because of what Fred did, that one day, 
you know, we're gonna we're gonna have a gay president one like, day. I have no, no like doubt Tyler in my mind. Would be like, hey, you know? Tyler could do I feel the like, same hey, way. Tyler, I remember reading Fred's story um, when I was doing someone to donate like I would have loved to have him on the show. I still would love to have him on the show because I think he he does have that perspective going through the first and not to talk too much about Fred, but I mean, but you know, I think he would be a great person for you to interview because you know he gets kind of derided. And, and people say, you know, he never really, he wasn't a serious candidate. It's like, well, he got interviewed by Rachel Maddow on a few different occasions. He got interviewed by David Frost. He was interviewed by CBS News. I mean, he ran a legit campaign, and he was on the ballot in California and New Hampshire. And so, I mean, he he uh, he definitely deserves a place in, in history. And uh, and I'm, I'm, I even Pete actually has acknowledged his campaign and said that Fred Blake Israel for him. So I think I think I'm, I'm sure you're the same. You know, I'm a really big. Um, LGBT history, uh, you know, dork, and uh, I think it's important that history be recorded correctly. I agree 100. We're gonna have to have you do a regular meet and greet with me here so we get him on the show. That'd be great. But yeah, do it. Whatever. I think our history needs to be told the full history of it. So that's amazing. Let's move on a little bit. We're talking about your advisory board being on the WeHo LGBT advisory board. You've also been very Time um, Wait, uh, on the Outfest board, which uh, <laughs> Outfest is so important. We have a mutual friend and a good friend of my show, uh, Billy Clip, who you worked on with Long Road Freedom. I love Tell him. Tell me about yeah. how Outfest is going to look this year. Everything so wonky. Right. What are you guys looking towards this year? Well, I actually I left the board of Outfest about four, actually, incredibly enough, about five years ago. Now. Oh God. No, 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 no problem at all. I mean, I actually, I still go to a lot of their events, and I still, um, as you said, I actually was in um, a briefly one of the films that screened there um, last year. So no, I mean, I am very much, um, you know, still involved and still a fan of Outfest. But um, yes, I mean, I know for a fact that uh, I don't know the intricate details, but I know for a fact that they definitely are having a change there. Um, you know, their, their, uh, their plans for this year. And I think, again, another silver lining is even though it's sad that a lot of, you know, festivals and, you know, um, big events are having to be rescheduled or postponed. On the other hand, you know, I remember uh, when I was a board member, you know, a big conversation. This was five years ago, so the technology wasn't maybe even as, as good as it is now. We were having conversations about wanting to, expand like, um, the access minutes, you know, online and virtually out to Outfest content because you know, there are kids around the country and you know, not just kids, adults, maybe every you know, like in, 20, 30 in states so, where obviously being gay isn't a quite as um, accepted. You know, there are people who want to, who would love to be able to access the content who can't be here at the festival in person. So. Uh, I have a feeling Instagram that I think I've actually heard that, home with a that the festival is planning to um, like expand their and online uh, presence and hopefully uh, make their content accessible to people around the country. Which would be great. I love that. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, we're at the 21st century. Yeah, it's all about it's all about virtual content now. Time you know? for a break before your next right. drink. Very good, very good. Yeah. All right. 
Well, I want to get your writing a little bit here. You were active way back in high school. You did presentations on Harvard Milk. You wrote for Frontiers Magazine when it was out in L.A. Mr. HuffPost, an advocate. Tell me about that experience. What does the writing mean to you? Like you said, everything is like streaming media now. What draws you to writing now? What makes you want to write a good story? You know, I've always had um, a thing for writing. I mean, even when I was a kid, I was I was always a, a good writer. I or just uh, you know, I, I, when that was the thing I was good at in school. I was terrible at everything else. Terrible, terrible at science. Terrible at math. Um, I just always had an interest in it, and um, and I was always interested in reading and and learning through through words. I was numbers was definitely never my were never definitely never my forte. So, but then when I was um, a teenager, I forgot who it was, but someone I think either reached out to me when I was like 17, when I was still living in, in Europe. Um, I think I'd already started doing political videos and stuff, and so someone found me and reached out to me when I was 17 and said, do you want to write um, articles for Frontiers here in L.A., knowing that I was, still, I was planning to move back to the States um, when I was 18, and so... I think I wrote my first article for them when I was 17, and, you know, since then, basically, I've written on and off for a bunch of different places. I've written for, as you said, Frontiers, but then I started writing for The Advocate, for Out, for Huffington Post, for Queer Tea, for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, I'm actually writing now um, two articles of mine for LGBTQ Nation, which is sort of a sister website of... Um, of queer tea, but they have like an insane um, following. They have like 1.6 million um, likes or followers on Facebook. So it's just a a great feeling to know that, um, you know, that at least twice a month you're able to pick an issue that that matters to you and write about it and then have that message amplified and sent out to millions of people. It's a really, it makes you feel like you're doing something um, bigger than yourself and hopefully doing something positive, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, doing something positive. Right. Very good. I love that. And that brings us right into today. We have the brand new Duke download with two episodes under your belt here. Talk about the impetus for that. Like I said, your mom is an amazing interview. You have Leslie Jordan just happened to be blowing up right in the middle of all this happening. Talk about what made you want to start this and your goals for it. I always wanted to do something on camera, um, and I've, I've, I've made various and I made several attempts, like I think maybe about three or four years ago. Yeah, I tried doing a couple I mean, episodes. I, I interviewed like Perez Hilton. I also interviewed uh, Patty Davis, Ronald Reagan's daughter, um, a few years ago. But I, I never really like um, you know, continued with it because I never, I could never really find the right angle. But um, you know, I, I figured, given what's going on, the fact that we're all staying home, and the fact that. Uh, I think people are really craving content at the moment. And plus, also, having the platform of Instagram, uh, which I didn't have four years ago. Um, I think Instagram Live is such a cool concept because it's it's cool that you can sort of do everything via your Instagram. You can link to lots of different things. You can do interviews. You can do videos. You can do... Photos. Down, it's, it's, but, it's a really you know, I mean, great platform, and I thought I don't think we're gonna that this was the right platform for me to to finally sort of follow today, through but, on this um, on this you know, idea I mean, that I've had. 
to do on 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 screen show. So yeah, I, I reached, of course I started with my so mom, which I thought was appropriate, yeah, and uh, then. It was funny because when I saw Leslie Jordan on my Instagram feed, I actually had no idea that he had this insane um, (laughs) week where all of a sudden he blew up and gained like a million followers in the space of a week. So, you know, I just thought, oh, he'd be great. And so I reached out to him, and then I saw all the stuff that had happened, and I thought, oh, my God, what a sweet how nice of him to agree to do this in the midst of this insane week that he was having. So I interviewed him, which went really well. And then this Sunday, I'm interviewing um, the 12th. I'm interviewing Steve Jones, who, of course, you know, yeah, you know, and I and I, you know, I, I said when I started this show that I wanted to do a mix of politics and pop culture because you know, that's who I am. You know, I'm I'm very political, yeah, but I'm also I love like, film, you know, I love music, I love TV, and I don't want to just be a one-trick pony and be just a purely political person. I want to be able to talk about a lot of different subjects. So I thought it would be good third guest to be to be a political figure or an activist, but you know, I'm sure as I. Go, I'm going like, to interview lots of different kinds of people from both entertainment and politics. That is amazing. Good for you, man. Keep it up. I mean, you're definitely handsome. You look good on the camera. You ask the right questions. I think it's uh, I think it's right up your alley, dude. What's some of your uh, guests you're hoping to go after in the future? I have a huge list. I mean, you know, some of which are high in the sky. I mean, Everybody yeah, from up, you know, Sam Smith, because I really, you know, I really respect we'll the fact that he's talked a lot about body image, which right. I think well, is an I issue that doesn't get talked about enough in, in the gay community, and that's something that I feel really strongly about. I have everybody from Sam Smith to, you know, Pete Buttigieg, of course, is on my list. I have, you know, like who are friends of mine, people like, I have them looking at my list as People like Stephen Fry, who's a big English, you know, amazing writer. Yeah, and then Elton John and his partner, yeah. David well, Furnish, um, you know, who I'm acquainted with, you know, and I, I, I think about we'll hopefully trying to get, get them one day. Um, well, you know, uh, of course, I'm a huge Hillary Clinton fan, so maybe at some point if down the line of my show builds some some momentum, maybe I might be able to try to get her. So, you know, I have, I have people I know, and then I have people who are sort of, you know, my dream guests. So, We'll see what happens, but, um, but I, uh, I feel good about it. We'll just, I, I think it's, yeah, you, you can never know where it's going to take you, but as well, if you go, if you put stuff out there and, and you, uh, you know, you're productive, then you never know where it's going to lead. Well said. Well, I wish you the best of luck, my friend. Wrap up with the final question I mean, you are a writer. You're the son of celebrities. You've done so much good work in and of yourself. You think you might have a book inside of you, hopefully for, one uh, day, and hope you can remember really more about your life than your mom did from your interview. That was hilarious. Well, it's funny, actually. I've thought about, um, and I've actually written a proposal uh, for a book. Well, actually, it wouldn't just be a book of mine. It would be a book from both my mom and I's, or me and my mom's perspective, I'm talking about 
you know, having a gay son and, and uh, you know, sort of the story of Mimi coming out and how she dealt with that and sort of a self-help book for Pennsylvania and their gay kids. And I read a proposal for it and, you know, I don't know if it'll happen, but we've sent it to a few different people and there's been a little bit of interest, so... You know, we'll see if that actually um, if that actually comes to fruition. But I definitely plan on whether it's that specific concept or something else. I definitely plan on um, hopefully getting into that uh, field in the not too distant future. Fantastic! That's a great idea too. I mean, you and your mom were so good. I saw your little um, interview you guys did for people. Um, I have heard well, one that, that was amazing. Yeah, I think the two of you would be great for something like that. Great job, uh-huh. That's fantastic. I was just going to say, you know, she wrote her book, Lips Unsealed, about uh, 10 years ago, which was really successful and was a New York Times bestseller. And she, she was a pretty good um, writer. So I think, you know, not only would she would it be a good book, I hope, but, you know, I think uh, it would be a fun project for her and I to work on together. So. Well, Jim, Jason, you have been an absolute joy to have on the Lucky Trade Show. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Thank you, Scott. Really, really appreciate the invitation. It was a lot of fun. Well, do me a favor. Let all my listeners know where they can follow this fantastic new Duke download on your social media handle and where they can find you. So my Instagram is where I do the show every Sunday afternoon or evening. It's Instagram.com slash James Duke, D-U-K-E, Mason, M-A-S-O-N, James Duke Mason, one word. And uh, after I do the Instagram um, live shows, I upload the interviews to YouTube, and the uh, YouTube link is on my Instagram profile, so people can find all of the interviews um, on uh, on that so, same page. You know, Very good. Well, stay on the line for me, Duke. Uh, Guys, I really appreciate you listening in today. We're going to no, go ahead and really play out. And be sure to stay tuned. We're going to have a special five questions with Duke here and a little bonus content coming up one of these days here. So have a good afternoon. You're listening to Left to Straight Show right here on Left to Straight Radio. Who will probably need the most help? And also, who will probably be the most helpful? So, yeah, he definitely would be a good resource. Pulling past the signpost of this tiny weathered town. The tears welled up so high inside, I thought that I might drown. Everything's different, but it all looks the same. And now you're here inside of me, and I'm rid of all my shame. I just hope that they will see. What is always been in me? How much do I love you? Will they understand everything you took for us? Those wedding bands. The road ain't always pretty. And a home sometimes seems far. With twists and turns, lessons learned. Growing pains and but it's time for me to say This is who we are When I was a small boy I never thought there'd be That perfect happy ending For anyone like me I could read the signals 
our good buddy Blake MacGyver with This Is Who We Are. If you haven't caught Blake's Wednesday uh, happy hour shows, be sure to check it out, 7 o'clock on his Facebook page. He's one of the artists doing some great streaming content during the great Corona 2020, so please check his stream out. Guys, I know you all remember um, our presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg I had on the show back March 5th. Uh, right before he blew up on that CNN town hall, we talked about him being an openly gay and proud presidential candidate for the 2020 election, but he was not the first to run for that distinguished office. My next guest ran for president as an openly gay Republican back in the 2012 presidential election that eventually nominated Mitt Romney. But even more important than that, he's been a huge advocate for our LGBT rights, same-sex marriage, Prop 8 in California, saving one of my old go-to bars in Laguna Beach, California, and has run some successful boycotts against some very large corporations with Californians Against Hate. I'm excited to talk to him all about all of this and more. Please welcome to the show for the very first time, Mr. Fred Carger. Fred, how you doing, man? Hey, great. I'm out in California and enjoying a little sunshine. Thanks, Scott. It's to have you on the show, my friend. You've been such a, a great um, – proponent for LGBT rights, 
Uh, the running for president threw me. I did, told you off air. I didn't know about that till a little bit into this gay man running for president. I think that's amazing. But how are you holding up in Crony 2020? What are you doing these days? Whereabouts in California are you these days? So I'm uh, based in Los Angeles and, uh, of course, been home for the last the five weeks tomorrow. Uh, I do get out and try and get a long walk every day, swim a little, and and keeping busy and uh, just finishing up a book, which um, I'm excited about and should be up and available soon. Um, um, a couple things, my, my activism, my life growing up gay, and my closeted life as a professional, and then the I like to term it a hobby of mine, which is crashing events, which I've been termed, uh, named the world's greatest crasher. So I'm going to do a tell-all book about all those uh, adventures I've had, which I think will be a fun read and maybe even a movie someday. That sounds amazing. I think it would be. That would be great. You have lived a very storied and uh, great life, my friend, doing some great things there. Talk about Corona and politics a little bit. We'll go into your career and your activism in a bit. Let's talk about Corona in the light of politics for a second. Uh, We've got so many things going on. We've got federal rights versus state rights with what's going on right now in the presidency. We've got about opening the economy. Your governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, got a little controversial yesterday by wanting to give some stimulus to illegal immigrants. How do you think Corona is going to shape up the political field this year? It's completely, you know, thrown it to the curb. It's uh, I can't imagine, um, you know, trying to run a campaign for any office um, in 2020. It's it's really uh, disrupted the whole political process. We've seen so many primaries um, for you know all these state offices and, and local offices postponed. Uh, certainly, uh, the beneficiary of this, of course, is uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who was able to clinch it pretty early, uh, at right. least as far as his momentum was going, and then able to shore up much earlier than Hillary did uh, Bernie Sanders and President Obama and, you know, pretty much the entire Democratic Party to get behind him. But, you know, he's having to campaign for President of the United States from his basement. And, you right. know, you've got his opponent out there, you know, crazy as usual, every day for an hour or two, um, live on all the networks. So it's it's a very difficult situation. I, I, as you pointed out, Scott, I ran in 2012. So had I been successful, I'd be in and, and gotten reelected, I'd be uh, just winding up the end of my second term. And so I'd have been right. saddled with all this. I, I've given it a lot of thought. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of mistakes made. We're learning. Um, I mean, I, I'm just in a state of shock that uh, our governmental agencies, the World Health Organization, and others weren't more ready for this because, you know, we've had these various pandemics around the globe, nothing, of course, like this, um, but that's right. kind of their job. And then certainly all these science fiction movies that depict a similar situation. So you just think we've been ready for it. Of course, you know, I haven't, nobody, I haven't given it any thought that, anything like this would ever happen, but it's just disrupted the world and, and we will never be the same. Certainly we will get through it. I don't know when, but it's going to change everybody and, and everything we do. And I just hope we survive this and I hope the structure of our democracy survives this. And so I'm, I'm usually a very up positive person, but I just, I'm, I'm very nervous about this because I think it's going to be hard for people to, to return to a normalcy. And, um, 
you know, without that, uh, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Right. Well, it just pulls in so many directions. It pulls the people's livelihood with what's going on with the economy. It pulls the people's health, as we said, obviously, and it's still not a known enough factor on what's causing it. And every, I mean, I, I talked, I saw some story the other day where this uh, young lady and her son, her son was on a um, study abroad in Italy, came home with the virus, gave his mom the virus. They've had they've tested positive for six weeks in a row with no symptoms, so they have no idea still how this stuff is kind of going, what the incubation period is, and every time they turn around, there's a new variable there. So the health is weird, the economy is weird. How are we going to get this started back up? Because so many people have lost so much money and livelihood here. Um, both parties are playing their games. As Democrats are trying to give all sorts of stuff away and trying to do way too much money as far as I'm concerned. A lot of things Republicans are trying to keep their grab onto power for as long as they can, which I understand everyone's in power does that. I think voting is the biggest key though in politics right now is how is voting going to be affected? What are your thoughts on voting? Well, we're going to have to change to vote by mail in all 50 States and in Washington, DC, there's no, no choice. And, you know, California has done it successfully. It's a voluntary basis, but the mechanism in place, you know, I learned running for president that every state has very different elections and there are no two states alike, really. So to get these other states that don't have that vote by mail up and running, I think is going to be hopefully in in progress right now. Um, The convention, certainly, you know, they're both clinch now, but to try and, you know, formalize the platforms and the official nominees of each of the two major parties, that's going to be very difficult. I was very much looking forward to Milwaukee. My friend Joe Salmonese was the head of the convention, so <laughs> already planning that out for the Democratic convention, but it's, uh, you know, I think everything is going to be canceled. If you're going to yeah. limit it to 10 people or 50 people, um, it's not going to end. It's not going to end this summer because the hope that it's like the flu that dissipates when the warmer weather comes, well, then you look at the Southern hemisphere and that's very much summer down there and it's running rampant all over South America and Africa and New Zealand, Australia. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a huge problem. And um, I don't know how the elections will, will turn out, but uh, hopefully this democracy, we certainly saw it in Wisconsin, how, dedicated voters were when they were ordered to to vote that day they put on masks and gloves and stood in line for hours and so it was amazing it really was seeing that but it is it's it's you know shows you the dedication of american public and and the patriotism and the importance of of voting and so i'm i'm always reinvigorated when i see that um i know it's there but you know the country does pull together it will pull together it's more difficult now because we have to be isolated at home but you know when we do face an emergency a 9-11 or a war or a pandemic the country does rally together and and i think we'll we will survive this um okay and um the sooner sooner the better of course right no exactly well said Let's start at the very beginning because it's your first time on your show. Talk a little bit about that. Where did you grow up? What kind of a kid were you? And what did you first want to be when you grew up? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, long time ago. Uh, so I grew up 
outside Chicago. I'm a sixth generation Chicagoan, so I just you know, moved out to the suburbs when I was about six months old, and I was nice. a pretty bad student. Um, I was uh, a class clown. I like to make people laugh. I, of course, going through a lot of reflection and old photos during this pandemic, I looking back at some of my early crushes from TV, starting to figure out I was different. And, you know, when I was nine years old, I guess, is when uh, you know, Leave it to Beaver was on and I had a big crush on his older brother, Tony Dow. And then right. My Three Sons, which I'm now watching on MeTV, I had you know, crush on um, Don Grady. So, you know, you start to put that puzzle together when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, I didn't know what gay was. There were no gay role models out there. There were a couple people we assumed were gay, like uh, Charles Nelson Riley or Paul Lynn, but, you know, they weren't even out. And so those were my two choices. So I had a pretty tough time keeping that secret for a long time, but I I became pretty good at it. Um, I was a terrible athlete, of course, usually second to last pick when there'd be a pickup <laughs> softball game or something. David Sachs was always last, so luckily he was around. Um, but so it was a pretty idyllic childhood, though. I lived out in the suburbs with a, you know, I had my Schwinn bike I'd ride everywhere and um, never have to lock it up, and we didn't lock up our houses. And actually, I've, I've told my story in a memoir. I'll get a little plug in for it. It's called Fred Who written by somebody I grew up with, Steve Pfeiffer, who was a very accomplished author, has written several um, other memoirs for famous people like James Baker III and um, Morris Dees, who founded the Southern Poverty Law Center and many others, and I was honored that he did mine, and it's on Amazon. It's a good read, Um, and talks about the struggle and the double life I had, and so when I was able to, I um, decided after college uh, that I wanted to get the hell out of Chicago because if I was going to be gay and keep it a secret, that was a tough place to do it, running into right. family or friends. or So I hightailed it out to California. I uh, came up with the excuse to do it. Um, I, I wanted to be an actor, even though I really hadn't done any acting or hadn't been a passion of mine, but I met <laughs> a guy out here on a previous trip. Um, and I was crashing some of the Academy Awards and the Academy Awards events uh, named Alan Carr, and he encouraged me to come out here and said he would help me. He was a big personal manager. So I made the move to California, gave myself two or three years right after college to make it as an actor. I obviously didn't, but I worked a lot. Uh, I did about eight television shows in the 70s and uh, one pilot, a spinoff of Welcome Back, Cotter, which was the John Travolta vehicle that made him a big star and um, I was going to be a recurring character on that called Horse Shack did a big commercial that John Hughes uh, that went on to great fame as a director it was his when he was still in the advertising business he wrote and directed for Edge Shaving Cream which ran for three years kind of an iconic commercial with a credit card and then got into my real passion which is politics which I'd done in Illinois since I was a young teenager volunteering on campaigns, and then I, I went to work for a guy named Bill Roberts, who had run Reagan's two campaigns and had a small consulting firm, did that for about 30 years, um, keeping my gay life very separate from my straight. So I was always gay. I had a pretty you know, healthy gay life on the, on the side, uh, partnered for 11 years from 29 to 40 throughout the 80s, which is why you're able to talk to me today. We realized we did save each other's lives through the whole AIDS pandemic exactly uh, right very fortunate for that and of course you know that was just a very defining decade and a half for me I lost so many friends I went to so many funerals um, and kind of 
I think, gave me more of a purpose to get involved in not just the HIV AIDS causes and organizations, which I did in California, um, and donate, but also to to really step up, step it up and, and realize that I've been spared and I'm here for a reason and anything I can do to make life easier for the LGBT younger people, I want to do. And so when I retired in 2003, uh, I was 53 years old. So you know, I was a little young to retire, but I was able to, and I wanted to do something significant. I wasn't sure what it was. The last thing in the world I ever thought I would do would be a, become a full-time LGBTQ activist, but but that's what happened, and, and here I am after about 16 years of that and, and loving it and very happy with results I've had and, and finding this direction in my post-career and um, able to talk well, to We are very lucky like you, you did because you have had a lot quite of a few accomplishments. We are definitely going to go through a few of those. I, I just find that that's a fascinating life. I love that story. I like that you were partnered. I mean, I didn't think about that at the time. I was I came of age during AIDS, so it was a very scary time for me because I had just graduated high school in 82. So it was just starting to blow up then. And so when my first coming out was during this pandemic, and it's like it was a very scary time. But on the same side, I came out of it more as an activist after seeing some a lot of the failings of the people and the government and how they reacted to it. But um, I didn't really think about the people that were partnered um, helping each other live through that because it was it was a hard time back then. That's amazing. It was difficult. And, you know, certainly, obviously, gay marriage wasn't even in the part of the vocabulary, but it was uh, right. at least, you know, my, my uh, great joy or one of my pleasures was I was able to have a life before HIVA. So the 70s, in Los Angeles, when I moved out here in 1973 at 23 years old, you know, were pretty spectacular and pretty um, empowering too, because there were so many people that might not be out to their family or at work, but they were very comfortable going out. And the thing that really was kind of a novelty there were relationships. And, you know, really with the long-term relationships, and obviously I say long before gay marriage, but. Um, we were we were fortunate to have met on Thanksgiving Eve at a bar in the San Fernando Valley and stayed together and lived together for 11 years. So yes, that was I was you know one of the lucky ones from that whole period because that was very scary and I can't imagine guys like you coming out with that epidemic going on and the fear of just being with another man um, right. could kill you and in a in a terrible slow painful. Um, and often, you know, embarrassing because people weren't out um, kind of death and, and a certain death, too. You know, the thing with this pandemic is the deaths are pretty isolated to those with preexisting conditions and to the elderly. Um, most right. people pull through it, of course, but it's a, it's a terrible, terrible disease and illness in several weeks of, of misery generally. So. Yeah, it, it was a tough time to come out. I remember a good friend of mine from the 70s who was kind of rethinking whether he, he was gay or straight and asked my advice. <laughs> I said, hey, you know, 1986 or something, I said, Ben, if you can be straight, be straight. <laughs> because yeah. it just took a lot of the pressure off. And if, if it was a 50-50 kind of thing, which I don't necessarily believe in, um, um, go for it. Because it was so scary to be with another man um, where you just don't know if you're if it's going to cost you your life, and so 
it's a tough time to come out. It's a tough time to live through. And then, of course, knowing I, I keep a list in my desk I put together just to, so I'll, I'll never forget of all the friends and acquaintances I've lost. And there are probably about you know, 30 or 35 yeah. people on there that were, I was close to. Unfortunately, not any really close friends. Um, but I did detail in that book, Fred, who my experience with two close friends I lost, one of whose family was there for him uh, you know, in an unbelievable fashion, um, and the other whose, whose parents or mother couldn't deal. And um, so he pretty much died without any family, and his friends rallied to be around him. So there are just so many stories from those you know, terrible 15 years right. or so before they finally came up with good treatment and drugs, and now this miracle of miracles that um, PrEP is around uh, really pretty much act as a uh, vaccine, although it's not a simple shot, but it's a strong drug and you know, has to be given a lot of thought before taken, but can certainly bring back a lot of the freedom and, and, and take away a lot of the fear that you know, so many people have had for so long. Right, exactly. And I mean, it goes to, does give hope because, like you said, back when this was first flaring up and definitely in the 80s, it was a death sentence. And with the current pandemic and everything, we never got a a um, vaccine or we never got a cure for it. But PrEP has come along to really stop it. So even if we can get something like that for COVID, um, there's hope out there. We don't need to have a, a vaccine per se, but if we can find a way to at least limit its effects to the flu or something and have something like a prep that's a that's something at least so we know what we're looking for at least yeah and you know that every country and every drug company um are trying to come up with this cure and vaccine so the race is on and um you know a lot of money at stake and nobel prize and all the other things that are going to be happening so (laughs) whatever so that's uh that's encouraging, but yeah, it's going to take a while. So we have to adjust to this new normal, which actually, Scott, I'm kind of getting used to it. It's, it's nice. <laughs> you know, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm not laid off like tens of millions of people. So, you know, you can actually spend some time by yourself in my case, because I'm not partner now and just, you know, enjoy things, do things, do get caught up and, and just relax. And I haven't put a watch on in uh, about five weeks. Which <laughs> I was oh, daily watchwear. So just just something like that kind of hit me a couple of weeks ago. That gee, that's kind of just to be free from from that time constraint. Uh, uh, certain right. advantages and trying to look at look at the positive side of of what we're going through, what everyone is going through. Now introverts are happy campers with this, and people that that like to stay at home. <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's a good time for some people. That is for sure. It's, it's their day has come. Well, let's jump into politics for a bit before we talk into your activism. I want to see what what um, led you to your politics early on. You, you said you were doing uh, working for local people in Chicago. What formed your political beliefs, and have they changed at all, or where are you finding yourself these days? Well, I come from a family of Republican moderates, and – my dad was a little bit active, not much. Um, so it was always clear to, you know, balance your budget and make sure you're not going into debt and, uh, and very socially liberal, pro-choice Republicans. So I started um, 
working when I was 14 years old on two campaigns. Uh, one was for uh, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, the term Rockefeller Republican, which still lingers, where was a term for, for liberal Republicans uh, like myself and certainly then Governor Rockefeller. And again, socially moderate. Uh, leading the charge on the civil rights issues when the Democratic Party was on the other side trying to stop the Civil Rights Act from being passed, all the Southern Democrats. And so I got involved in the Rockefeller President campaign, which was fun. Again, volunteering as a 14-year-old on phone banks. I used to take the train into the city of Chicago and work on the phone banks, uh, which was pretty unusual for somebody that young. All the campaigns I've been in since, you don't see that. Um, And then also for a guy named Chuck Percy, who was a big, successful businessman who um, ran for governor in 1964, also when I was 14. I volunteered on his campaign, which was a little closer. And then two years later, he ran for the U.S. Senate. I was, had my driver's license. I was able to drive to the headquarters instead of taking my bike and, and worked on his campaign. And then uh, when he was up for re-election, right after I graduated college when I was 22, that summer before I moved to California, I worked in a major capacity on his campaign for re-election, which was a, a cakewalk and very fun and organized this three-week bus tour for him and his family to go all over Illinois and even part-time drove this huge Greyhound bus, uh, which was an adventure. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't, didn't get in any wrecks, and it was all covered like the campaign buses now, which was kind of fairly new in 1972. They're wrapped with all the, it's called People for Percy. So, that's when I really got the bug with those two campaigns uh, and through my dad a little bit. And then when I moved to California, I also thought that was an option, but I'd made the commitment to do the acting. Um, so I wanted to give that a couple of years at least. I gave it three um, before I, I landed a, the pilot and the big commercial. And then I said about another uh, probably seven or eight guest shots on episodic TV shows, twice on McMillan and Wife and Medical Story and Rich Man, Poor Man and kind of big network shows at the time when there were only three networks. This was even before Fox. And then uh, I decided to volunteer on a U.S. Senate race in California, a guy named Bob Finch, who was the kind of moderate Republican in the race, and that's where I met Bill Roberts. And then he hired me to come to the Dolphin Group the next year, which was the firm that he had started. And he and his business partner, Stu Spencer, had run Reagan's two campaigns for governor in 66 and 70, Mm -hmm. and they were kind of the hot moderate consultants. They had run Rockefeller's campaign in California in in 64. And so they were very important, very influential, and also real trendsetters in coming up with things like polling for political candidates, which hadn't really been done then. They'd been done for products, but not for candidates. And they thought, why not know what the voters are thinking so we can direct our messages toward them? And then they pioneered television advertising, too, with Reagan, who, of course, actor and a natural so I learned from the best. I learned from Bill Roberts. Um, I was there about 12 years before, 11 years before he passed away, at just about 62 years old. Um, and so then the three of us were left to run the firm. And we, we did that. We did a lot of candidates, local, state, federal. I worked on nine presidential campaigns. And throughout this period, um, for this 20 plus years, I was pretty much closeted and Having that boyfriend for 11 years became a little difficult, you know, just making plans. And, you know, I guess I really wasn't fooling too many people at work. It just it was, you know, just not discussed. But uh, I remember coming out to one of my coworkers who had been the receptionist <laughs> at the office, and she said the only question I had was, 
how long did you and Jeff go out? Was it 10 years or 11 <laughs> years or something? Because, you know, he'd call every day. <laughs> so they, they figured it out. So once I was able to kind of come out at work and come out to my family, which I did at, at 41 years old, that took a lot of the pressure off and just made my life so much better. Um, one of the reasons I've become an activist is to encourage others to do that when it's right, because um, you know there's there's certainly not the stigma uh, there was when I was growing up. I, I like to term it the gay advantage now, um, part spin and part truth. That it's um, in many circles, depending on where you live and how your family is and um, your friends and coworkers, it's it's advantage now and and take advantage of that because for so long we we're pariahs. Um, and we were ashamed of ourselves and no self-esteem and, and had to hide like I did for so long and live a double life, which I do not recommend. Um, now you can be out and proud and it helps you work if you work for a big corporation and they have their LGBT or out at work group, you know, and you're in it and right. make great connections with executives and <laughs> move up the corporate ladder, which you couldn't if you were gay before, if you didn't have a spouse and, play golf or something, and you were very limited. So it's a wonderful time to be um, LGBTQ, and um, I just hope people are, are appreciative and, and will pay it, pay it forward to help, to help others in the future. So I'm a political junkie. I, I retired, as I mentioned. I took a couple years off. I wanted to do something significant, and then the, the bar you mentioned, I didn't know you'd gone there, but you were one of the lucky ones like me to be able to enjoy this magical bar in Laguna Beach called the Boom Boom Room, which by our research in One Archives, which is the largest LGBTQ archives organization based out here in California at USC, through their research, it's the oldest, was the oldest bar in the Western United States, continuously operating from the 40s. And so we tried to save it when this multi-billionaire bought it. Uh, it was really his wife's project to redo it, and nobody was going to attempt to stop him. Um, and so I stepped up to the plate because I'm officially a Laguna Beach resident and spent uh, probably at least half my life there. And so I stepped up. We started Save the Boom, which turned into a, a two-and-a-half-year project. Uh, we got a year extension for the bar, and that uh, survived. It was my public coming out, which I was very scared out at about 50 six years old, but LA Times ran five stories about our efforts, including a Sunday magazine with 12 pictures of me. Uh, this wow. was about 2006. So, you know, you're a bachelor, 56, trying to save a gay bar. It's, uh, <laughs> you don't have to say I'm gay. And so that was, believe it or not, very traumatic for me. And then as I would see a lot of people I knew through work at various holiday parties or whatever, you know, everybody come up to me and Oh, I knew, or or you could have come out to me, or yeah, you know, I got nothing but great feedback. So once that happened, I decided to really step it up, and that's when Prop 8 reared its ugly head. And as a you know political junkie and somebody who specialized in our firm did in opposition research, pointing out the the problems with your opponent, which is you know there's two sides to every campaign. There's one promoting your candidate, and and one kind of pointing out the uh, the negatives of your opponent, and um, you got to give people reasons to vote for your candidate or against the other one. So I did that um, on the Prop 8 campaign because we had never, and I think we had 27 or 28 lost marriage equality elections at that point, and all by huge margins and way outspent. And I knew Prop 8 was going to be definitive because we just 
allowed, our Supreme Court had just allowed gay marriage in California. So the opponents had put this on the ballot to remove it in the event that happened. So it's California, it's 2008, you got Obama. It's just I knew it was going to be probably the second most visible, prominent election next to the presidential. So I, I offered my services, and, and I would pay for it all myself. I wouldn't raise any money. I wouldn't take any money away from the No on 8 campaign. A little hesitation because a lot of people didn't know me in the LGBTQ rights movement, all these organizations, but I got a sign-off right. from all of them, and I went to town. And we boycotted this guy, Doug Manchester, who had given $125,000 to put Prop 8 on the ballot and bragging about it in the San Diego Union Tribune like he gave money to a children's hospital or something. And so somebody in there said we should boycott his hotels. And I, I referred to him then as the Donald Trump of San Diego because he was the biggest developer there. He named all the properties after himself. So I partnered right. with Unite Here, met Cleve Jones, one of my heroes who, of course, worked for Harvey Milk and had done the AIDS quilt and all kinds of things. And he worked for the union, Unite Here, which uh, represents hotel employees. So we partnered with them and uh, we cost this guy a million dollars a month in lost business that we were um, we, we found out from his office that they had, they had admitted they'd lost a million a month. So it was a very successful boycott, and I'm sure they lost a lot more than that. He finally ended up on exactly. that, I love that, that same amount of money to LGBT groups. And then we did three more boycotts, um, including uh, one in Utah uh, when I discovered the Mormon Church's involvement and gave that story to the Wall Street Journal and just decided that, okay, if you want to give money to take away our hard-fought rights, and to, to, to harm LGBT, particularly youth, um, you're going to have a price to pay. You're going to have your businesses boycotted. You're going to have commercials made against you. You're going to have bad press. And I, I went to town on that. And, you know, the media was very, very supportive. Uh, the New York Times loved me. <laughs> they, they broke the story about our first boycott. It was just basically me and a friend who designed a website. And then, you know, we pulled in the Unite Here uh, operation, which was spectacular, but, you know, we're still in the infancy of this thing. We have a huge New York Times story, an LA Times story. So I knew the press would love it. Um, and I knew we'd get favorable coverage because, you know, those other people are so awful and, and we have a great story to tell. So uh, there was really no turning back. And, and that's why I ran for president. That was really stepping it up um, to, to, a, to a first and historic first. And um, I thought it would be time for that. And uh, this was in Oh, as Prop 8 kind of ended and things went on, I continued to fight against this National Organization for Marriage, and now I'm out. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to run for office. I never thought I could because of my deep, dark secret of being gay. But that's out now, so what should I run for? And that's when I decided to go. look at running for president. Well, I love that. And the act, like you said, there was, you did such great work that I can't believe – I mean, boycotts, I've never been a huge fan of boycotts. I never thought they worked. Then I read your story. It's like you had four of them, and all four of them worked greatly. I mean, it's it's amazing what you were able to accomplish on those. I do want to give a quick shout-out. Uh, Fred and I got together because of Duke Mason. <clears throat> and speaking of Cleve Jones, he's got a great new YouTube series called Duke Downloads, and he had a great talk with Cleve last Sunday. So all my listeners out there, we have an interview coming on uh, with uh, Duke but check out his YouTube page for Duke's Downloads because it was a great conversation with Cleve there as well. Um, between the two of you, man, you guys have done some stuff, my friend. I'm liking it. 
Yeah, well, he's been at it a lot longer and a lot more visible and always been a hero. And he was, he was a very funny, um, like all good campaigns, and I'm sure we'll be seeing Pete Buttigieg soon. There's a wonderful documentary about my campaign, and it's on YouTube. It's free. It's called Fred Who. Or I'm sorry, it's just called Fred. And it's, it's on called Fred, John, yeah. uh, It's called Fred. It's on John uh, Fitzgerald Keitel's page, who's the director, and put this whole thing together. And, and Cleve opens the uh, documentary by endorsing me in New Hampshire and said, I'm not in the habit of endorsing Republicans. As a matter of fact, this is the first, but you should get to know <laughs> this guy. And we, he was slow coming around because of my past, but then uh, we became great partners together with his union and, and a great friendship developed. And, you know, we're similar generation. And so uh, we were able to relate and, um, you know, similar journeys, but um, that was fun to get to know him. And then, as I say, I've gotten to know every leader in, in the LGBTQ community uh, through my activism. And if they don't want to meet with me, I try and meet with them and have lunch or coffee or drink or all three. Um, and so I've really um, thrilled and privileged to have gotten to know, you know, so many of these leaders, most of whom have been at it much longer than I have when I was just shuddered when I would read about some of these people that were out, whether they're elected officials like Bob Gentry, my hero, was the first openly gay mayor in the country and in Laguna Beach in 1982. Couldn't believe right. that that was possible. This college professor at the University of California, Irvine, and he did he raise hell for 12 years. And this was, of course, 82 <laughs> to 94. So during the, the AIDS crisis, which Luna Beach got hit worse than any, any other city per capita. Um, and he was doing all kinds of pioneering things back there, domestic registry and all kinds of things on the AIDS issue. So, yeah, to get to know a lot of these people has been one of, one of my great thrills in life, um, continuing. And then, you know, all the great new young leaders, like as you said, Duke Mason, who I met during my campaign, who's also very prominent, one of the narrators of that documentary, Fred, he's in there, um, along with some other great younger people. Um, and so that's kind of the, the message I'm sending out, like, like you are. It's important that this next generation really step up and, and, and not, not forget the past, but also you know, look to the future as we're, we're moving ahead here and making so much progress. Right. And I do have the links in the description. Those of you who want to go to Blog Talk and look at the description of the episode, you can find the links to both the documentary and to Fred's book. I encourage you. I did watch the documentary. Fascinating. Loved every second of it. Um, so very cool. And besides, I mean, you, you take on such causes with fever. I mean, you've, you've rallied around Israel. I mean, you've had a different change of heart in capital punishment. Um, you're one of the early don't ask, don't tell kind of against that, supporting ending that. Uh, just really kind of brings you to a cause what what really kind of fires your engines these days is there anything out there right now that we should be aware of on the lgbtq spectrum that we're not really fighting for right now or what is the next big fight do you think well just stepping back because um you know one of the great and proudest things i've ever done was of course initially meeting pete Buttigieg. Um, back in March, I'm sorry, February of 2019, when he was on his book tour, just starting out, um, been only in, in the game for about a month after he announced his exploratory committee. So I was very active in his campaign. I was on his um, National Investor Circle, which is his National Finance Committee. I raised a lot of money for him. 
um, got to know him, got to know Chaston. Uh, a lot of the senior campaign team and, and finance chairs and all that. And so, you know, that's, I'm curious to see what, you know, he's going to do next, but I've never been more proud to, to represent and work for and be part of a campaign than his. And it's hard for me to get excited. I know Biden's got it <laughs> clinched and I like Joe Biden a lot, but, you know, I, I just wonder if Pete Buttigieg was in there now, how he'd have, how much better he'd have handled this whole pandemic than Trump. And he's just somebody right. that is so bright and so capable and just the kind of thoughtful, calm demeanor um, surrounding himself with the best and the brightest. Uh, so, you know, th that's stepping back, but what a year. And I probably, you know, met him six or eight times throughout the year at various events, was at a lot of his very significant events, was at the big retreat they did in Chicago in January um, for just the, you know, the people who'd raised a certain amount of money and with all his, again, senior staff there. And I was at the debate at Detroit uh, with his group back in July, which was really fun. That was the second debate, and he was on the second night, but things he was really catching on fire at that point, and that's when all there's still 20 candidates in. So, you know, it's just when people like him come up and, you know, I don't think there'll ever be anybody like him again. Um, he's, he's pretty unique, and he's going to be around for a long time. Um, you know, no, that, he's amazing. Really like I, said, I got excited. lucky to interview him right before he blew up. Um, before his first CNN town hall, uh, he's been on my radar because being here in Northeast Ohio, um, when he came out for his reelection in Indiana, it's only a six hour drive from here. So it kind of made our local pay quasi a bit here. So he'd been on my radar a couple of years before he even thought of running for president. And then when that came about, I had reached out to him and talked to his team when he was a mayor. And that kind of got me in, in the early thing before the CNN thing, but he is, he is everything you want him to be in person that he is on the campaign trail. He's very true through and through. So it's, it's very, yeah. it's very encouraging what we have ahead of us. Yes. And he's, you know, he's starting this new pack win the era. And so he's going to be around. It's unfortunate with this pandemic, he was just starting to get going and, you know, he guest hosted the Jimmy Kimmel and, you know, he's going to be doing right. all kinds of things, but that now they're kind of like everybody else are kind of, stuck at home. So it's, you know, a little more difficult to be visible as I think they had hoped to and out campaigning for Biden as, as he had hoped to as well. But, you know, so looking into the future, I just think there, there are various things that we've got here um, that will be, be coming up on the horizon. And certainly, you know, the opposition, a lot of the religious right that's working in states to take away rights to particularly bully and demean our, our transgender uh, community um, are still going ahead. I'm involved in a couple organizations um, that are taking them on as well. Um, but I've kind of stepped back from, from my attack on those. I've concentrated um, on what I see as one of the biggest offenders to not only the LGBTQ rights around the country and the world, but uh, the huge impact of their own members, and that's the Mormon church. And so, as I'd mentioned earlier, I discovered their involvement in the Prop 8 campaign, which came as a huge shock to me. I remember they were involved right. in the ERA back in the 70s, which you know, is now back in this movie with Phyllis Schlafly or this docuseries on Hulu FX, which I watched last night. It's pretty good. Um, but they, they were out front, and I remember that was just struck me as so odd. I knew nothing about that Mormon church. Now I 
I've been told by a lot of these ex-Mormons that I know as much as they do. Um, I've been studying this for 11 years since I busted them in Prop 8, and I was also told by the head of their Prop 8 committee out of their public affairs office, whom I met in an event, that the church uh, has never been the same since and never will be since that issue came out and, and I busted them. And that's, that's the story that I gave to the Wall Street Journal when I put the puzzle together. There's all this money coming in, about $30 million of the $40 million they spent on the Yes on Prop 8 campaign to pass Prop 8 were from Mormon church members. And that the church itself, although they only reported spending $2,078, ended up, uh, after I filed a complaint against them with our state ethics office, election ethics office, uh, 13 uh, cases of election fraud I charged them with. Well, they were guilty on all 13 charges. They're prosecuted. A year and a half investigation never happened of a religion before. And they were um, fined and, um, and you know, I, I pretty much got out of the anti-gay marriage business after that uh, and doing a lot of damage gotcha. control and lost, lost a lot of members. So I have let it be known to church leaders that I'm going to continue to um, – um, point out a lot of the shortcomings of this church, including their uh, violation of their tax-exempt status. And I filed a complaint now be um, about a year and a half ago on this uh, big operation they have in Hawaii uh, called the Polynesian Cultural Center, which is a theme park that they categorize in their IRS form as a cultural museum. So, of course, no taxes are paid. Well, that's anything. It's a Disneyland with rides and you know, right. restaurants, just like Disneyland, $100 million a year they bring in, and they pay zero taxes. So I filed a complaint with the IRS, and there's a bounty for that if we're successful. It got a lot of press, and I've continued to be a thorn in the side through an organization I set up about three years ago called Mormon Tips. And a lot of these people have left the Mormon church for a variety of reasons, not just because of their terrible policies on LGBT uh, members and, and what they do, the rest of us, the non-Mormons, uh, that they have said that, you know, this is what is really encouraging them to um, to keep the fight up against the church. And a lot of those people are unhappy and okay, give us tips, which is why we call it Mormon Tips. So that's got a website and a lot of the best information I've gotten, particularly on tax fraud, which I've been very out front on and done commercials against and run commercials and the church has gotten them pulled and then I've gotten them pulled put back on, has been questioning their tax status. And we're working on a giant uh, complaint on all their holdings. They, they've got something like a trillion dollars in, in holdings. Uh, one just came out, um, an ex-Mormon and his twin brother released this uh, IRS complaint and found they have $100 billion in just in this one um, private equity fund that they have, $100 billion in cash, which wow. they contend is violating... Wow the law because they have to pay taxes on that, which they've paid zero taxes on, or they have to give a certain percentage of, of it away, and it, they've done nothing. And they just said, oh, it's their rainy day fund. And that's had a huge impact. So there's a lot of uh, information out there. We're going to compile it all for this massive complaint we're going to put together. And hopefully they will change their ways and stop having Utah having you know eight times the attempted suicide rate of any other state because all these Mormon kids are so – demeaned and shamed um, that they are, you know, if they do stay in the church by their families or, or if they do leave. So that has kind of been my project, which I've 
been um, on for 11 years, and I'm going to be stepping up, and I've been doing some of the research during this downtime as well and, and working with the team and some other organizations on that. Well, that is so very cool. I like all of that, Fred. And I, I mean, one of the things that was said during Corona, which I agree with, it's like um, when they were debating whether to keep churches open or not, it's like, well, we're calling these an essential business. Well, if it's a business and not an organization, they should be taxed. <laughs> and I think I think they should be. So I agree 100%. That's if you're calling an essential business, let's tack them like, tax them like a business and not the organization that they are. Well, Fred, we're running out of time. Yeah. I could talk to you all freaking day, my friend, but let's go ahead and wrap it up a little bit. Um, if people want to reach out to you, or is there, do you do the social media at all, or do you have anywhere they can contact you if they want to, besides uh, checking out, like I said, we're going to have the link to the, um, bio, to the documentary and to your book. Do you still try to keep in touch with people, or how can they reach out? Yeah, I'm very easy to get a hold of. Um, so yeah, we've got uh, my main website is um, you know as generally it's rights equal rights, which is you would in my introduction you'd interested is California's against hate, which is how exactly how I started out. And once we went to Maine, we kind of came up with a more national name. So rights equal rights is my main organization, which has all my contact information on it. Um, I'm on uh, of course we have a YouTube channel called Fred TV, which is where a lot of the commercials from the campaign, which are fun, and a lot of the news coverage. And then we've got um, Twitter, obviously, at Fred Carger, at Fred Carger, and Instagram and Facebook, and it's Fred K-A-R-G-E-R. So I'm about as public and out there as you can get. If you can't reach me, something's wrong. Well, I am excited to be in contact with you. We're going to be talking more because I can listen to these stories forever. I do try to get out to California at least once a year for a month or so, so we're going to have to have coffee once we're allowed to leave our houses again and actually meet other people. Um, But I'm looking forward to it, my friend. Me too. I can't wait. So travel back and we'll we'll see you in California. Thanks very much for having me on your show. It's been my pleasure. Stay on the line for me, Fred. Guys, we're going to play a little song here, and we'll be back right here on the Left of Straight Show on the Left of Straight Radio Network. You are the best thing, you hold my heart inside your hands, you're magic. You make me crazy, your touch, it makes me lose my head, it's tragic.
We are back. That was our buddy Matt Stern with It's Magic. Matt will be on the show for Monday, Musical Monday, this coming Monday. He's got some new music out, so we'll be talking to him. Guys, a great big shout-out and thank you to my two guests today, Duke Mason and Fred Carger. Had such a great time talking to both of them. They have done so much great things for the community, Fred especially with his activism. Um dating back a long time and really I, I've always said that I never thought boycotts were that effective. He's had four major boycotts that have had serious effectiveness go through. He's been on the champion of rights for the entire time. And you know me, stalwart Democrat. Um, and he being a Republican most of his life. Uh, but socially he's been on our side for the beginning as part of the community and just such a great advocate. So thanks to Fred and, I'm just excited to see what we're going to see coming out of Duke. Um, His interviews on Duke's downloads are so good. And I can't wait to see what office he decides to run for again, because he's going to be an amazing uh, politician. He already is an amazing advocate and advocate and advocate. Uh, I can't speak, man. These I'm telling you this live stuff. I have so much pre-tape. I'm not doing good with the lives. Am I at all? Anyway, we got day four of five. Remember, we're coming at you all week long, five days a week until the corona quarantine is over. So tomorrow I have a brand new show for you. Three exciting interviews for you. We're going to talk to Paul Richmond. He's one of my favorite artists, an amazing artist. He's done work for Cher, for Dolly Parton. And he just finished a commission for singer Troy Sivan. I did an album cover for him. So we're going to talk to him tomorrow. Then our good buddy Billy Clift will be on. Billy's a director, writer, and producer. He's done so many great shows, and he'll be on to come talk about some of his new projects. And for the first time in the story, I have Jake Dean Taylor coming on. He is a actor, model, and fitness advocate out of West Hollywood that is just making the scene and such a nice guy. So we're going to bring those three on tomorrow. Look forward to that regular time. 6 to 8 p.m. on the West Coast and 9 to 11 p.m. here on the East Coast. 
Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe your favorite podcast, subscribe uh, subscription, and you can follow me on social media at Instagram and Twitter. It's at Left of Straight, and the Facebook page is Left of Straight Show, and my personal page, Scott Fullerton, is open to the public. Send me a friend request. So, great show tonight. Thanks again to my guests. We will see you tomorrow. Oh, by the way, we all these shows are full length and up on YouTube now on the Left of Straight Show YouTube channel, so you can find it there as well. So that's about it for tonight, guys. Have a great evening. Be safe, and bye-bye. We'll see you later.